And so when I see a woman step up to the plate and she tells me she quote unquote is serving God, but she's doing it in a way that is co totally contrary to this passage, it means one of two things. She's either grossly ignorant of what God has said, or she's rationalized this passage and in her rebellion she refuses to submit to the truth. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of chapter 2 of the book of 1 Timothy, a controversial section of Scripture in this day and age because it addresses the issue of gender roles in the church. Over the past few days, Pastor Carl has presented an overview of the responsibilities of men and women in verses 8 to 15. Today, we dig deeper into our passage as we camp on verses 9 to 15, which cover four elements of a woman's role in the body of Christ. If you're joining us for the very first time, it's my practice to typically take a book of the Bible and to work through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we happen to be in a section of this particular pastoral epistle that deals with the role of men and women in the church. Now last time we looked decisively at what God has called men to do. And we're going to pick up on that once again when we come to the third chapter. But then last time we also cracked the door on what God calls women to do in the church. So if you're here for the first time, this is part two of that sermon, and I'm not picking on women, I'm just preaching the next text in, the, in this epistle. And so what we find here in verses 9 to 15 is some very pointed instruction on the role that God has played women to, pl to take in the church. Now, I thought originally this would be a two-part sermon. Looks like it's going to be three parts. I don't know, it might be four uh, as I get into it. It's just so packed with truth, and it is so important that I want us to really understand it. Let's begin by reading our text, especially for those who are not familiar with it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold of pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I've meditated long and hard on this portion of Scripture, not just this week, but actually for many years. And I happen to believe that this passage represents the single most important issue facing the evangelical church. It's already become a watershed issue amongst Bible-believing Christians. The church, which for 20 years has committed, was committed to the same understanding of this passage of Scripture, in the last decade especially, the church is now systematically and progressively changing their understanding of these verses of Scripture. And I'm amazed 
in how many denominations, how many Christian organizations, how many seminaries are fast jettisoning, jettisoning the doctrines that they have held their whole life long. Books are coming out with, quote-unquote, new insights, with new truth. And they're going back to these scriptures, and they are reinterpreting them, or for many, they're just totally ignoring them as having no application for today. Now, numerous approaches have been used to argue away these verses of Scripture whose meaning, I think, is quite obvious. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to read 1 Timothy 2.12 when God says that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man and to wonder what that really means. It means what God has said. And evangelicalism, which for the most part through three decades has stood as the last bastion of truth against the feminine women's movement, is now crumbling. Now let me say, there are some things I think that came about through women's lib that are very good. Because there are some areas in our own country where we did not match up with truths that are taught in the Word of God. But I believe much of what has come through the women's movement in the last few decades, has been actually evil. And it's doing tremendous damage to the family. Satan knows to destroy a nation, you destroy the family. Because a nation is only as strong as its families. And he knows that the key to building healthy families is the church. And so if he can create role reversal in the church, if he can tear down the family through the church by distorting what God has called the church to be and do, well, he'll put all of his ammunition at it, and that's precisely what we are seeing in these days. Organizations or denominations that, of course, deny the absolute authority of Scripture, you're not su surprised on the issues that they have come up with. Now, most pagans can read 1 Timothy 2.12 and tell you precisely what it means. They say, yeah, Paul says a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. What's the mystery? Now, they don't accept that. They don't receive it because a natural man cannot understand. He cannot receive. He cannot embrace the things of the Spirit of God. They reject it with great disdain. But what surprises me is now you have evangelicals who can't see what the pagan theologians can plainly see. And they're twisting and distorting and reinterpreting the Scripture. You know, the neat thing about the Bible is it interprets itself. And God within the Scriptures has left a model on how to interpret the Scriptures. If you believe that language was given by God to communicate, then the Scriptures ought to be understandable. But what is so wonderful is the way the New Testament writers themselves interact with other scriptures. You see the hermeneutic, the principle for interpreting the scripture that God has put in the scriptures themselves. And yet so many of these denominations and organizations and some seminaries are now applying a new principle to understand the scripture. And the sad thing is that they are moving down a slippery slope that I believe will lead to death in terms of the preaching of the gospel. It's a slippery slope. Church history documents it. If you'll twist Scripture just a little bit, if you'll compromise just a little bit, if you'll do it here, then you'll do it over here. 
and I've yet to witness any kind of denomination through my study of church history, and I love it. I love church history. I've read extensively on the subject. But I've yet to see any denomination or group manipulate the Word of God in some area and not within a short period of time become a liberal apostate organization. How is it? that so many churches that once with fire in their bosom preached the gospel, led men and women to Christ, now have the glory of God departed, has departed off of their organization or church. Why? Because they've left the truth of Scripture. The devil, as I'll show you next time, is doing the exact same thing in these last days that he did with Adam and Eve there in the garden. Now, I've observed in my short lifetime that if you're not faithful to the Word of God in a little thing, you won't be in many things. And what we're going to look at today is not a little thing. It's a major thing. The health of your family, the health of this church family, the health of the body of Christ in America is critically dependent on this very issue. And before we're done with this series of sermons, I hope you will see that. Now remember, Timothy is a pastor. He's a leader over the body of Christ in Ephesus. The apostle Paul handpicked him and put him there. And Ephesus was a wonderful church, doctrinally pure. It's one of the few letters in all the New Testament where Paul is not ragging on them and spelling out all kinds of problems because for the most part, they are very solid Christians. But doctrinal error had entered in. Some years had passed. So God sends Timothy there to help lead the church. And Paul writes Timothy this letter with the purpose to mend some of the doctrinal tears that had formed. If you remember in our opening study of this book, he gives us one of the reasons why he writes the epistle in chapter 3 and verse 15. He said, in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of truth. And among some of the doctrinal error that had slipped into the church was the problem as it related to women. And as we'll see, one apparent problem is that a number of the women were guilty of role reversal. They were usur usurping the authoritative roles that God had given to men by wanting to become pastors and elders and teachers in the local assembly. Now, remember, the primary reference here concerns public worship. And so we studied last time that when the church gathers together, men, for instance, are to lead in prayer. Doesn't mean that women can't pray in the fellowship. Doesn't mean that they should be shy in praying. In Acts 2, in the upper room, we find men and women alike praying. But men are to take the leadership. He uses the word men in deference to a woman. Men, you lead in prayer. But I mention that for this reason. If you haven't heard it already... There are some in our day who would traditionally be considered conservative Bible-believing Christians who are skirting around the roles that God has outlined for men and women by saying, well, yes, that's what Paul says when the church is gathered for worship on the Sunday morning like we are on the Lord's Day. Oh, but the parachurch, or when the church is gathered in some other context for Sunday school, 
maybe for some uh, Bible cruise, maybe for some conference, then it's okay for women to teach and exercise authority over men. Granted, some would say, ah, oh, it's okay for women in those contexts to preach. Oh, they shouldn't in the church on Sunday morning. But in other contexts, it's okay. Now, that's a gross abuse of the Word of God. And any thinking person, if they would just stop and pause for a moment and see where that is headed. I mean, think your way through this, because if you haven't heard this, you're going to hear it. When God lays out for us a truth, a principle, we need to get a hold of what that principle is, and then you make proper application from it. But I know that it can't mean that this applies just on Sunday morning when the church is gathered. For instance, what we read in verse 8, Therefore I want the men, andros, not anthropos, I want the men in deference to a woman in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. He's talking about when the church comes together, wherever it is, in a Sunday school place, Sunday morning, in a Bible conference, it's men in every place who are to lead. And when Paul deals in this same passage with a woman's dress, again, he's dealing with a problem that was taking place in the worship service. He told the women, look, you need to dress modestly and discreetly. Did Paul mean that that's the only time you need to dress modestly and discreetly? That during the week or at a Bible study or out when you're shopping around, then it's okay to be immodest and not be discreet? You can see the folly of that kind of thinking. Now, as we look at verses 9 to 15, there are four elements that spell out God's design for women in the church. And in these seven verses, we find a very comprehensive treatment of the role of women. So we're taking our time to carefully unpack these verses because they're absolutely pregnant with truth. Four elements that deal with a woman's role in the body of Christ. It concerns her appearance, her submission, her design, and her contribution. Now, we're not going to cover them all today, but let's review for just a moment. Last time, if you remember, we looked, as you can see there on your note-taking outline, at a woman's adornment. Some of the women, by the way they dressed, were denying the truth that they had professed, namely that they had come to church to worship the living God. And so Paul gives some very helpful instruction describing a woman's adornment on at least three levels. First, if you remember, women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Look at verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. If you haven't noticed yet, men and women are quite different. And one of the major differences between God made, the way God made a man and the way God made a woman concerns her commitment to adornment. Women have a much higher commitment in this area as do men. And ladies, that's not bad. And we men appreciate it. And so when Paul tells a woman that she is to adorn himself, he's not denying the basic way God has wired her. God made the sexes differently, and so he does not prohibit feminine adornment. Now, we saw that the Greek word for adornment is the word cosmeto. We get our English word cosmetics from it. It means to arrange or to put in order. And so when a lady adorns herself, she is arranging herself in such a way as to enhance her beauty. But the Bible also reminds us that people have a tendency to look at outward appearance 
whereas God looks at the heart. And so in keeping with that very principle, there's another kind of beauty that is far more important and far more permanent. And that's the beauty of conduct and character. And that's where Paul places the emphasis. Look again. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. That is the beauty of character and conduct as is fitting to a Christian woman who makes a claim to godliness. Now, we noted last time that there's a contrast here between the physical and moral beauty, and the contrast seems largely to be in terms of emphasis. Now, I know that there are some denominations, some pastors who will take this verse of Scripture and say, look, ladies, don't wear makeup, don't wear earrings, no necklaces, don't wear expensive dresses, certainly don't braid your hair, and they'll appeal to this passage of Scripture. But in its context, I think it's very clear as the rest of Scripture, like 1 Peter 3 unfolds, it's an issue of emphasis, not merely on the outside, but on the inside. But we also saw, linguistically speaking, that the no-buts of Scripture are often comparative and not exclusive. Very often, as determined by the context, when God says, on the one hand, not this, but this, he means not only one thing, but mainly another thing. And we looked at an example from John 15. No longer, Jesus said, do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, Jesus elsewhere calls us servants. He tells us that he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. He tells us that the servant is not greater than his master. And so when he makes a statement in John 15, 15, he's not excluding the fact that we are servants. When he goes through this, no, this, but this, he's not excluding that we are servants. He is simply affirming that we are not only or mainly servants. He is teaching in terms of emphasis in our relationship with him. It's one that is a friendship. He can call us friends. And so when the adornment here is said to be not this, but this, there's no absolute prohibition of jewelry in every kind of hairdo. Rather, the emphasis is on the requirement of modesty and restraint and a rejection of the extravagance and costly attire that some of the women in that assembly had adopted. God is contrasting the artificial glamour of the world with true character that he highly esteems. And sooner or later, given enough time, a woman who only looks to the outside is going to come up short. Now, it's interesting that King James translates this word modesty. It actually appears twice in the Greek New Testament. Shamefacedness. At least once they translate it that way. A woman who dresses modestly is ashamed to go beyond the bounds of what is discreet and proper. I like that old English word. Shamefacedness. It's gone out of use in the English language, but nonetheless it communicates an important truth. And what a contrast with so many pagan women in our day. So many women today have no shame. And they will parade their bodies, revealing as much as they can possibly reveal. But the maturing Christian saves that for her husband. And so she dresses with modesty. 
So first, Paul affirms that a woman is to adorn herself in modest apparel. Secondly, she is to adorn herself in discreet apparel. We saw the word discreet is a Greek word that in other places in the New Testament can be translated sobriety. It refers to a well-balanced state of mind. And it is quite possible for a woman to be dressed modestly, but not to be dressed discreetly. And Paul knew that in the worship service, that it could become a fashion show. That some women would dress in such a way that caught you off guard. It was kind of like, look at me, an advertisement and a signpost, rather than coming to worship and look not at her, but at the living God. And so Paul is speaking of balance, of propriety here. He's putting the emphasis on modesty and discreet apparel because he knows that is what honors God. And so here in verse 9, the emphasis is on modesty and restraint. It's okay, ladies, to be modern, but be modest. It's okay to be decorative, but be discreet. So first, they're to be modest in their apparel. Secondly, they are to be discreet in their apparel. And third, women are to adorn themselves in godly character. Negatively, he's asking them to reject the immodesty and the extravagance of the world. But Paul's not content to leave it there, so he deals with the positive realm as he opens a contrast in verse 10. But, but by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, obviously, Paul is not suggesting that good works are a substitute for clothing. But he is insisting that good works are the best of all adornments. The truly beautiful woman is to be discerned not by her cosmetics, but by her character. She is to be evaluated not by her hairdo or her jewelry or her dress, but by her Christ-like character. And so he is encouraging the women to focus not just on the outside, but on the inside. It is their character that is to be developed so that when a man sees a woman, what he is drawn to is not just the outward appearance, but the inner heart. So when you come to verses 11 and 12, he now moves to the second dimension of a woman's role in the church. He moves from a woman's adornment to a woman's submission. He moves from those who dress indecently to those who lead improperly in the church. Now remember, this section opens with some very strong statements. Paul says, therefore, I want the man in verse 8. And in verse 9, where the verb bulamai is shared in the Greek text, he says, likewise, I want women. Now I have I want there in italics as it is in your New American Standard Bible, because it's not in the original, but very often in Greek sentences, they would share a verb. And so, very plainly, he says, this is what I want. Now, he doesn't use the Greek word "thelo" as he had in some preceding verses that speak of desire or wish, where God says, I wish, I desire, that none should perish, that all men should be saved, God does not command all men to be saved. That's God's heart because that's why he sent Christ. He wants people to go to heaven. But when Paul says, I want, don't understand this statement to mean, as some say, well, this is what Paul wants. Well, this isn't necessarily what we have to want. Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. I want, the King James renders the strength of the verb, I will. The Jerusalem Bible says, I direct. It's a very strong verb in the Greek New Testament, and it's not the will of desire or wish. It's the will of command. 
And so, in the same way, he puts a prohibition on the woman, women in verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. Again, Paul is speaking with his God-given apostolic authority as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that Paul just simply wishes or hopes will happen, but something that he is commanding the church to practice. And so when I see a woman step up to the plate and she tells me she quote-unquote is serving God, but she's doing it in a way that is totally contrary to this passage. It means one of two things. She's either grossly ignorant of what God has said, or she's rationalized this passage, and in her rebellion, she refuses to submit to the truth. Now, without sounding too simplistic concerning this raging debate, I think this passage is absolutely clear in Scripture. I don't know how any thinking person with an open mind can conclude anything else than what God has plainly said and what the church has believed for almost 20 centuries. God said what he meant. He meant what he said. And God wants women to know his perfect will for their life. Now, before I'm done this morning, I know some of you are going to have some questions that I've not yet answered. And understand, we're, we're just going to look at one verse this morning, verse 11, and we're going to crack the door on verse 12, and next time, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 12 in detail and see how it's further explained by verses uh, 13 through 15. So if some of your questions are not answered and some of the verses that you hope I'm going to address aren't yet addressed, come back next week. But verse 11 says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now let me tell you why people have a tendency today to write this passage off as irrelevant and as having no application for today. It's because at the heart of this passage is the issue of submission. Men by nature don't want to submit. I mean, ladies, we want to kick against the will of God if we can. That's the way we all are by nature. That's the way our flesh is. We're rebels. And women, when given the chance, neither do they want to submit. Add to that, you have pulpits all across America that have been feminized. I hear some of these men preach. They sound like ladies. I mean, they do. They're not acting like men. The Bible says in Corinthians, act like men. And some of these men do not have the guts to be men because they're afraid of what people will think and then because they want to be liked by folks. And so they manipulate the Scripture. They twist it a little bit to be liked by other people. And so the modern liberation, women's liberation movement have influenced their understanding of Scripture rather than letting the Scriptures speak for themselves. And on top of that, a natural man can't understand, he can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. And so when you talk to a lost man about submission, whatever realm it may be, especially in the realm of the family and the church, they will immediately say, inequality. They will immediately say, you're speaking about inferiority. So let me stir you up by way of reminder in this passage of Scripture about the doctrine of submission as it's taught in the Bible. Well, that's a difficult place where we have to leave today. Tomorrow, we'll look at three things the Bible says about the doctrine of a woman submitting in the church. The study of gender roles from chapter 2 of 1 Timothy is fully covered over three different sermons, 
and is available by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. You can also order or listen online at searchthescriptures.org and through our Android and Apple apps. Today's message is the second in this series and is program 1TM5. Our goal at Search the Scriptures is to dig deep into God's Word so that He can use us most effectively, whether in our ministries, our homes, or on the job. If this program is growing you, would you consider helping support this ministry, either with a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly STS partner? For more information, call 877-787-7478 or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Thank you. Join us tomorrow as we continue our study from 1 Timothy and Search the Scriptures.